Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, the Bible app, turn to 1 John, 1 John, the Epistle John, not the Gospel John, 1 John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 is today's text. We're now in part 3 of our series, Authentic, say authentic, again, 1 John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 6 is our text today. And Before we even dive into the text, I want to do a quick review from last week's text, which was chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. And I gave you three points. You you might remember those points. The first one was the fact. Say that. The fact. And that's in verse 5. And there John John tells us what God is. And he's shown us God's authoritative revelation of himself. And he says, God is light. In him there is what? No darkness at all. There's no sin within God. He's absolutely, completely, consistently perfect, pure, righteous, true. He is holy uh, in his being, in his character, in his words, his deeds, in his actions, his thoughts, his motives. That's a fact. Say, that's a fact. The second point was the fellowship. Say that. The fellowship. That's in verses 6 through 8. And first of all, John points out the person who claims to have fellowship with God and lives a lifestyle characterized by sin, practicing sin, a habitual lifestyle of sin, and says that person, that person lies and that their own lives, their, their lifestyle proves them a liar. They're not a true believer. And then what John does, John then pivots in a different direction and now points to the true believer, the one who has been truly born of God, and then he says what a true believer's lifestyle is like. He shows us that a true believer walks in the light as God is in the light. And the result of that is that we have fellowship with one another. Remember that? We have fellowship with one another, and the reason why we have fellowship with one another is because, friends, we have fellowship with God. And that's the result, the condition of walking in the light, and because we're walking in the light, We know that Christ shed blood on the cross will continue to cleanse us from all of our sin. And then John goes back to the unbeliever, the unregenerated person, and says, to deny the existence of sin is is pure self-deception. To deny that one has no sin is to deny one's need for a Savior. One does not have the truth of Christ in them. The third point was the forgiveness. Say that. The forgiveness, that's verses 9 through 10. And there John tells us true believers, true believers, if we confess our sins, in other words, if we agree with God that our sin is sin, then God is faithful. Say God is faithful. We can count on God, right? And just, say just. In other words, he's legally and ethically right and righteous. And he says, and will forgive us of our sins and purify us, say purify us, from all unrighteousness. We're forgiven, it's forgotten, and we're clean. In verse 10, John says, If we claim we have not sinned, we make him, speaking of God, out to be a liar, and his word is not, what, in us. So John gives clear evidence that this is an unbeliever, an unregenerated person, one who's never, listen down, never by faith believed the word of God and received it into their life. Uh, They're oblivious to their spiritual state of being being spiritually dead uh, in their sins before God. This now brings us to today's text, and the title of uh, our message today is To Know. Say that. And you say, to know what? To know what? Well, to know that we know God, right? To know that we know God. Three points, if you're ready, say yes. Point number one is our sin. Say that. Our sin. Write that down, and we're going to look at verse 1a, the first part of verse 1. And John writes, my dear 
children. I want to stop it because I, I love this. There's an element of tenderness right here. We see that John cares about the believers like a loving father, and you can sense the concern and also the compassion that he has for them. He addresses them as children who need instruction and guidance. He has a shepherd's heart, a pastor's heart. And you see he had written to them in hopes of providing necessary guidance to live victorious in Christ, not bound by sin and the burdens of the consequences of sin. So he says, my dear children, let's read on. I write this to you so that you will not sin. So that you will not sin. And John's point here, friends, is not that we would be sinless. I mean, that's, that's not going to happen as long as we're here on this earth, right? Okay. His point here is to move us away from sin. Let me put it this way. He wants us to make it, make it our aim not to sin. I'm going to say it again. He wants us to make it our aim not to sin, okay? that we would no longer live in sin, swim in sin, or take pleasure in sin. And though we still trip and fall, we do, don't we? We still trip and fall into sin. We can't enjoy that sin. We can't enjoy it. We are to confess it, right, forsake it, to stay away from it. We still sin. We know that. It's just no longer to be the habitual practice or a lifestyle of sin. And what comes to mind is a woman caught in adultery. And there in John chapter 8, verse 11b, Jesus tells her what he says to her, go and sin no more. And when Jesus says go and sin no more, what he's saying there is quit practicing a lifestyle of sin. Turn away from that way of life. That's what he's saying. So here's the lesson. You ready for the lesson? There should be a true change in our behavior in regards to sin. Right? Right? There should be a true change in our behavior regard, regards to sin, in regards to sin. We need to live our lives free of sin as much, say as much, as we possibly can. Now, we still sin. We get that. We just don't sin as much as, much as we used to sin. Right? We're not sinless, but the more that you and I, the more we grow in Christ, we should sin less. There, there needs to be a radical transformation that takes place when we get saved. Are, are you guys with me on this? Okay, a radical transformation that takes place when you and I surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. We look at sin differently now. We deal with it immediately and despise and hate it wholeheartedly. And as Christians, we no longer love sin as we once did. We no longer brag about sin as we once did. We no longer plan to sin as we once did. We're no longer comfortable in habitual sin as we once were. We're no longer, we no longer fully enjoy our sin as we once did. Charles Spurgeon, C.H. Spurgeon said this, The Christian no longer loves sin. It is the object of his sternest horror. He no longer regards it as a mere trifle, plays with it or talks of it with unconcern. Then he says this, sin is dejected in the Christian's heart, though it is not ejected. Sin may enter the heart and fight for dominion, but it cannot sit upon the throne. Got it? Don't you love that? So John talks about our sin, say sin, our sin. Number two, and I love this, is our Savior. Say that. Our Savior. Write that down, our Savior. And we'll look at verse 1b, the second part of verse 1, all the way through verse 2. If you're ready, say yes. He says, but 
But if anybody does sin, I want to stop there. But if anyone does sin, John knew the realities of living in the flesh. He knew that, right? He knew our bodies were prone to sin. He knew there was a a constant battle between the spirit and the flesh. He knew the believer would commit sin. And this is simply a fact of life, right? It's a fact of life. So knowing that, I love what John writes. So he says, but if anybody does sin, he says we, say we, referring to those who walk in the light, okay, to those who confess their sins, we is referring to true believers. Got it? We, I love this, have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The King James renders it like this. We have an advocate, say advocate. We'll get into that later on. With the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Verse 2. He is the atoning, say atoning, sacrifice for our sins. And not only for our, for ours, but for our sins, but also for the sins of the whole world. Isn't that awesome? You, you see, when we sin, when we sin and we're going to sin, our situation is not hopeless. Are you guys with me? Now, now notice that John points us to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And he points out three things about our Savior. And I love this. So let's go back to the text and let's break it down, okay? He says, we, say we, we have, that's a present tense, right now, today. Okay, today, we have. Say, we have. One who speaks to the Father in our defense. Who's that? Jesus Christ. Again, the King James renders it like this. We have an advocate, say advocate. And I love that word, say advocate again. Because in the Greek, the word advocate is parakletos. Say that. One who is called alongside to help. That's what it means. One who comes alongside, who's called alongside to help. And Jesus, Jesus used this term, parakletos, in John chapter 14, verse 16, to describe the Holy Spirit as the Comforter, helper, right? But the word advocate also has another use. In the text today, it's used as one who is a defense attorney. Got it? One who pleads our case before the judge and one who speaks on our defense. Don't you love that? So so get this, and I want you to get this. The work of our salvation, got that? The work of our salvation is a finished work on the cross. If you believe that, say amen. Amen. But the work of advocacy, advocacy is a continued work in our lives here on earth. Got it? I'm going to say it again. The work of our salvation is a finished work on the cross. It's a done deal. But the work of advocacy, listen now, is a continued, right, never-ending work in our lives here on earth. Now, 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 Now listen. Though Jesus left the Holy Spirit to be our comforter here on earth, Right? Jesus never stops being our advocate. He's in heaven as our defense attorney. He's in heaven pleading our case before God. He's making, in other words, intercession, say intercession for us. He pleads on our behalf. Now, I want you to write these scriptures down. I'm going to read them to you. Hebrews 7.25 and Romans 8.31 and 34. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore, he is able to save completely. You know that he saves you completely? All right? All right? He doesn't save you like halfways, okay? Completely. Those who come to God through him because, listen now, he always lives 
Jesus always lives, say he always lives, to intercede for us. Romans 8, 31 and 34, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. He justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Jesus Christ who died more than that who was raised to life is at the right hand of God and is also, listen now, interceding for us. That's good news, right? It's awesome. So I want you right now, what I want us to do is I want, I want us to picture this. It's a courtroom setting. John is, is, is giving us a picture of a courtroom setting, and we have God the Father sitting in the place of a judge. We have Jesus, right, who is our divine defense attorney, and then there's Satan, the prosecuting uh, attorney who accuses us before the judge. In fact, we know this in Revelation, right? Revelation chapter 12, verse 10b. There we know that it says that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, right? The accuser of our brothers and sisters and who, who he, Satan, accuses brothers and sisters before God day and night. It doesn't stop. You guys got it? But thank God. Say, but thank God. Thank God we have an advocate in heaven who pleads our case. The best defense attorney in the whole universe is pleading my case and your case. Yeah? He's our defender. Not to mention, not to mention, he's the judge's son. <laughs> yeah? He's the judge's son. Listen, when Satan accuses us, and he does, right, before God the Father, Jesus points to his finished work on the cross and says, charge that sin to my account. Amen? There's a full acquittal. And by the way, Jesus, Jesus never lost a case. And we'll never lose a case, right? So Jesus is our advocate, say advocate, right? But also notice he is the righteous one. Say righteous one. You see, the reason why Jesus is qualified to present our case before the Father is because Jesus is without sin. He's the righteous one. He is a perfect standing in the courts of heaven. That's, that's Jesus. You see, Jesus had to be a lamb unblemished and spotless. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. I love what Peter writes here, 1 Peter 1, 19. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. Listen, friends, listen. Jesus alone is an adequate Savior, right? He's holy, righteous, pure. The sinless one, the sinless one who stands in our place. So I want you to follow me here. He's our advocate. Say amen. He's the righteous one. Say amen. The third thing, notice this here. He is the atoning sacrifice of our sins. Point out three things of the nature of Christ, right? He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The King James says this, and he himself is a propitiation, big word there, propitiation for our sins. In other words, and here, here is the great doctrine, I love this, of propitiation. In the Greek, the word propitiation is hilasmos, say that. Hilasmos, it means appeasement or satisfaction. Appeasement or satisfaction. So I want you to stay with me here, okay? To propitiate means to satisfy the wrath of God against sin. To turn away his wrath. 
That's what it means. It means to offer a sacrifice that appeases God's, God's just and righteous anger against us and against our sin. Huh? Jesus is our sacrifice, right? He's, he, he's our covering, uh, the payment and appeasement for sin, fully satisfying the righteous demands of God the Father. You see, Jesus doesn't offer a sacrifice like the high priest. Okay? He is a sacrifice. He's not the propitiator. He's the propitiation. Got it? And, and to put it into simple terms, Jesus becomes the obstacle remover in our relationship with God. In other words, he died, he gave himself to remove the barrier, say barrier, between God and man so we can be reconciled to God. It was the sacrifice of himself that made this possible. So you ready for the lesson? Here we go. It's real simple. Jesus, come on, Jesus, what? Is on our side. Yeah? He's on our side. Say he's on our side. Look at your neighbor and say he's on our side. Right? Amen? In other words, our fine has been paid in full. If you're safe, say amen. No charge. Say no charge. That the devil can bring against us can ever stand up in the courts of heaven. Can't. Okay? It's dismissed every time. The devil, listen, the devil has never, say never, got one of his charges to stick. And thank God that Jesus is on our side. Amen? Now before we move on to the last point, let's read, let's go back to verse 2 and read all of it again, okay? He is the atoning sacrifice or propitiation for our sins, and not only for our sins, now now get this phrase here because I want to point something out to you, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now I want you to stay with me here, okay, because we need to understand what this verse doesn't mean. And I want to say this. It doesn't mean that the whole world is saved. It doesn't mean that because universalism, you might know that religion, universalism believes and preaches that everyone, everyone goes to heaven regardless of how they live or what they believe, that the whole world is saved, everyone will be in heaven, there's no hell. That's universalism. And they use this verse, the end of that verse, but also for the sins of the whole world to try to defend their doctrine. Listen, the words in the text, but also for the sins of the whole world, those words, listen now, announce to the world that God is taking care of the sin problem, of the sin problem by the propitiation of Jesus Christ. Follow me now. That Jesus is the only God-provided satisfaction for sins for the whole world. But only those who trust and receive Jesus are saved. You got to come to Jesus. Amen? Are you with me? Let me say it this way. The work of Jesus on the cross is sufficient in value to save all the world, but only efficient to save those who put their trust in him. Got it? And you have this, this, this doctrine, this religion, universalism, that says, oh, no, we're all, we're all going to go to heaven. You can live any way you want. It doesn't matter. You can be this. You can be that. It doesn't matter. Well, that's just not true. And they use that verse. Well, guess what? We can debunk that right now. Amen? Got it? Say our sin. Say our Savior. And don't, don't you thank God you're on his side? He's on your side. Amen? Number three is our surety. Say that. Our surety. Write that down. In other words, how can we be sure 
that we belong to God? How can we be sure that we belong to God, that we're true, genuine, here's the word, authentic, say that, children of God, that we're truly, truly saved? Well, here John, what he does, he addresses the allegiance or commitment of believers. And we'll see that his point is that our relationship with God or lack thereof will be evident in our lives. The rest of the verse, the rest of these verses, the verses are the litmus test of obedience to the word of God. So follow me. Here we go. Verses three and four. We know. We know. Say no. Okay. By the way, John used the word no in his epistle, okay, 40 times. Okay. We know that we have come to know him, God, if we obey his commands. Got it? Now, this is not hard to understand. It might be hard to swallow, but it's not hard to understand. Okay? Verse 4, the man who says, I know him, says that, but does not do what he commands, is a what? Light our pants on fire, right? Got it? Okay? And the truth is not in him. So what John's saying, there's a big difference between knowing someone and knowing about someone. Right? John's not talking about knowing about. He's talking about knowing, knowing, knowing. He's talking about someone who has experienced the living God in such a way that it has changed their life. So let's get right to the lesson. It's not words that count. It's actions. It's not words that count. It's actions. And I know some of you probably have heard this a thousand times, but guess what? you got to hear it again. All right? Question, in what way, question to all of us here, in what way do you know God? What way do you know him? Do you just know about him or do you really know him? In other words, have you experienced his reality in your life? Because if you have, if you have, then you will, you will obey his word, you will keep his word, not just study it or know about it or hear it or even quote it, but obey it. Keep it. Live it out in your life because the Christian life is more than what we say, right? It's how you and I live. It's not, listen, it's not words that count. It's actions. It's how we live. And this is what John's driving at here. Let's go back to the text. We know that we have come to know him if we, what? What? Obey his commands. In other words, there will be a continual desire in our hearts to live pleasing unto God. I don't want to live to please God, right? Our lives will be measured and dictated by the word of God. And I got to tell you, friends, this is, listen now, an attribute that will reveal itself in our lives. It will be evident in our lives. We will be known by living in obedience to God's word. It's going to show. It's going to show. Write these scriptures down, James 1.22, Matthew 7.21, James 1.22, do not merely listen to my words and so deceive yourselves. What, is, what does James say? Do what it says. Do it. Okay, Matthew 7.21, even Jesus, even Jesus made the distinction between what people say and what they do. And he writes this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You guys get that? Someone said this, it is not what we eat, but what we digest that makes us strong. 
Not what we gain, but what we save that makes us rich. Not what we read, but what we remember that makes us learned. Not what we profess, but what we practice that makes us Christians. We practice. Listen, if we know God, we will live with a different set of standards than the world. Yeah? We will act in accordance to the word rather than in accordance to the shifting ways of the world. Our way of life will be different. Be different, listen now, in public and also in private. People will know that we know God by the way that we live because knowing him is manifested in our obedience to him and his word. And this is important. This is important. Listen, our obedience to him is not to be marginal or optional, right? It's to be the utmost importance in our lives. That we read his word, know his word, and live it out in our lives. Obey his word. Now, please get this. I want you to please get this. John's not teaching salvation by obedience. You guys with me? He's not teaching salvation by obedience. Listen, he's teaching that salvation is evidence by obedience. Okay? And that obedience contributes to our assurance that you and I, that we know God. That we know God. That we truly belong to him. In other words, we don't keep God's commands, his words to be saved. We keep his commands, his word, because we are saved. Now, now listen now. Okay? If there's no evidence of obedience, if we don't do what God commands, what does, John, what does John say about that? He says this. Look at the text again. The man who says, I know him, but does not, walk, does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Listen, a person cannot claim to have, to come, to have come to know God and not be living a life of obedience to God. Our allegiance, our commitment to God will be revealed much more by our walk and this is by our walk and actions than through the words that you and I speak. We can talk about God all day. Go ahead, talk about him all day, friends. Go ahead. But our lives must also bear witness of our relationship with him. There's some folks out there who talk a good talk about God, but man, you cannot see it in their lives. Right? And John's saying people like that, they're liars. You see, friends, true salvation, say true salvation, always leads to righteousness and obedience. Justification, say justification, is always accompanied by sanctification. Right? If you're justified, there'll be a daily changing in your life. And faith in Christ always shows itself in works. Right? In works. In works. Verse 5. Are you still with me? Say amen. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him or her. I love that. I'm going to stop there. I'm going to stop there. I love how John makes the connection between our obedience and our love for God. You see the connection there? Our obedience and our love for God. You see, a growing, mature love for God will always show itself in obedience to God. Huh? And John reveals that that's confirmation that bears evidence of our salvation. Prove it. Let's read it again. If anyone obeys his word, God's love 
is truly made complete in him. Here we go. This is how. What? We know. We are in him. It's right there. In fact, in John 14, 15, some of you might know this by heart, Jesus said, if you love me, Jesus says, you'll obey what I command. Right? Let's look at the last verse in our text, verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him, speaking of God, must walk, live. In other words, a continuous walk. Present infinitive. Walk as Jesus did. You get that? If we are searching for the real litmus test for salvation, this would be it right here. I'm going to read it again. Whoever claims to live in him, live in God, must walk, lives a continuous walk, right? Present infinitive, as Jesus did. The, listen, the standard for the Christian life is not the church. The standard for the Christian life is not a pastor or a minister or an evangelist or someone on YouTube, but Jesus Christ himself. Jesus, say Jesus, is the standard for the Christian life. Listen, if we truly know God, truly been saved, then our lives should resemble Christ's life. So what does that look like? That begs the question, right? How, how did Jesus walk? How did Jesus live? How would we sum up Jesus' life? Well, follow me, and I want you to write these scriptures down. I'll read them to you. John 6, 38. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will, say the will, of him who sent me. Do you get that? Do the will. Say do the will. John 17, 4. John 17, 4. I have brought you glory. Say glory. On earth by finishing. He brought him glory by what? By how? By finishing the work you gave me to do. Say glory. Say finishing the work you gave me to do. Matthew 20, verse 28b. The Son of Man, love this, did not come to be served, but to what? To serve. Say to serve. Luke 9, 23 and 24. Then he said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciples must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Got it? Say deny. Come on, say deny. Say take up the cross. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life will save, for me will save it. You see, the pattern, after reading those verses, the pattern of Jesus' life was one of obedience to the Father's will, one of glorifying the Father to complete the work he was sent to do. One of sacrifice and of a life of one, of one of service, one of service, and a life of sacrifice of denying and dying to self. That being said, question, does my life, does your life resemble that? Follow me here. Are we living in the will of God? Huh? Are we glorifying him in all that we do? Are we completing the work that he has called us to do? What has he called you to do? Are you completing that work that he's called you to do? Let me ask you this. Are we, all of us, are we serving? Are we serving? Are we living a sacrificial life, dying to self daily? Get that? 
You see, the spiritual power evident in the life of Jesus flowed from a faithful, regular, disciplined life of fellowship and obedience to the Father. Got it? Whoever claims to live in him, God must walk, live as Jesus did. I mean, are we doing that as, as he did to the Father? Are we walking and living as, as Jesus? I don't know. You can only answer that. I can only answer that my life. Are we doing that? Now, I got to tell you, this is not a popular message. It's not in some of the churches today. What's preached in some churches is this push for self-gratification and self-fulfillment, right? It's a self-centered gospel. And the focus is on self, not Christ, nor dying to self. And some churches have become more of an entertainment center than a, worship, than, than a place of worship. They no longer want to walk as Jesus walked or live as Jesus lived. It's no longer about a life of sacrifice and obedience. They want to be cuddled and stroked, not challenged and convicted. They don't want their lives challenged or changed. They want their ears tickled. And I say that because I say this, if you're safe, say amen. The church needs to get back, say get back, to the basics of walking as Jesus walked and living as Jesus lived. Hey, if we say that we are connected to Jesus, that we're walking and living as he did, then we ought to be acting more and more like him. Listen, Christians, there needs to be evidence, proof, in our lives, that Jesus lives within us. And that happens as we walk and live as he walked and lived. And by the way, Christians, listen now, if we are to reach the world for Christ, we must be, listen now, genuine in our walk. Genuine in our walk, because we will never be an effective witness if our lives don't reflect the life of Christ. And this is what John's driving at. Huh? So here's a lesson. You ready? We're going to wrap it up here. Here's a lesson. Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror. You and I, we all, we all need to look in the mirror, look at our own lives and ask the question, am I living in obedience to the word of God? Ask ourselves, am I living, walking as Christ lived, as Christ walked? You know what your mirror is? The Word of God. You want to know how you're living? You want to know how you're walking? Read the Word. Because the Word reads you. You see, and I'm going to close here. God expects the closest conformity to Christ in our conduct, in our character, because God is in the business. Say, He's in the business of conforming us into the image of his son. Amen? Come on, praise him because he is so worthy and so good. Let's all stand, amen?